This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, farmers who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and farmers who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Today we're chatting with Kirsten Diprose. Kirsten lives on a mixed grazing and cropping farm in southwest Victoria with her husband and two boys. She's also the co-host and co-founder of Ducks on the Pond, a podcast created by rural women for rural women. In this episode, you'll hear how Kirsten made the transition from city to country life, how she's challenging the stereotypes around women on farm, and how she's tackling the big issues on Ducks on the Pond. Now you might hear a new voice on the podcast today. I'm joined by my colleague, James Usel. Having studied ag at uni, James joined Rural Bank's graduate program and is currently part of the bank's agricultural insights team. So welcome, James. Great to be here, Annie. Let's jump in. Welcome, Kirsten. Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Farm Gate. Thanks for having me. Kirsten, can you tell us about where your connection to ag first started? I didn't grow up with any connection to ag at all. You know, I think I went to a farm when I was a kid, one of those like little pet farms and milked a cow by hand. And that was pretty much my exposure to farming until I met a farmer and fell in love and moved from Melbourne to the country to a town called Caramet. And I'm sort of 10 k's north of there. And yeah, we do sheep and crops. Now we also have some dairies. So I've came from very much a suburban city background to living in the country. Did you ever foresee yourself moving to the country? No, I was very much on a city trajectory. I'd grown up in Western Sydney and all I'd ever dreamt about was getting into the city, getting to Sydney. And I grew up in Penrith, which is part of Sydney. You're a good hour away and I just wanted to live in the inner city. And so I went to a uni that was in the inner city because I knew if I went there that forced me to move, I'd figure it out. So I did. And then I ended up getting a job in Melbourne with the ABC and I moved to Melbourne when I was 21 and just really loved it there. Was really happy doing radio and TV news was mainly my job as a reporter. And that was where I was heading. And I was kind of actually thinking about maybe even moving to London and trying my luck at the BBC. And my brother was living in London. I thought, oh, I could do that. And then one night out in Melbourne, I met a handsome (laughs) (laughs) man. I said, you know, when you're just chatting to someone, you're like, oh, where do you live? And he says, Karamit as if I would know where that is. And I'm like, where's that? And he said, oh, it's south of Dunkeld. And I went, where's that? <laughs> and he said, north of Warrnambool. I'm like, right, I've heard of that. And yeah, little did I know that 18 months later, that would be my home too. A big move to go from Melbourne to the country. How did you find that adjustment to rural life? It was tricky in some parts, really exciting in others. Like it's an amazing opportunity and I feel so thankful that I've had this opportunity and I think actually quite a lot that I really need to do something to help give this opportunity to other city kids because if you don't know it's there, you can't see the opportunity. That's where my next passion perhaps will lie in bridging that. Well, I already have a passion of bridging that city divide when it comes to knowledge, but I think in terms of careers, opening up agriculture to kids who just don't see it because they haven't grown up with it 
it was tough at times. I sort of took things slowly to make it easier on myself. I actually still lived in the city technically. I was still working in the city after I got married and then I fell pregnant quite soon after. So, well, I knew that I'd eventually be moving. So my job was still in Melbourne and then I got pregnant, was on maternity leave obviously at home on the farm and then I went back to work in Melbourne just two days a week when my son was one. It was okay for a year or so but it was really tiring driving three hours to Melbourne, especially when you had a young baby and I would have to be away from him for a night and not get back late the next day. And I found that really hard to be away from my little one overnight every week, once a week. So I thought, look, I've got to find something local. And I eventually did. So that was a hard adjustment. And part of it for me was I was really gun ho on keeping my career. I had it in my mind that I'm going to live in the country, but I'm still going to have a fantastic career. And of course, you can have that. But I think I went through this kind of mental process where I realized that you don't need to have a city title to be considered good at your career. It's like I almost had to explain, oh, but I've worked in Melbourne or, oh, but I've worked in Sydney every time I spoke when I was a reporter. So I eventually got a job as a reporter in Warrnambool and then later in Ballarat. So much closer for me. I still was kind of finding myself almost justifying that, oh, actually, I've worked in the city too. And then I thought, why am I doing that? That's ridiculous. Because when I was in the country, I actually worked harder. I always got better stories because you got better relationships with people. You kind of got your ear to the ground. You're connected to the community. So it just happens more naturally. And I started talking to other people about this and they had the same feelings, whether you're a teacher, a doctor, a nurse, like people from all over were saying the same thing, that people don't take them as seriously if you work in the country. And when you work in the country, you often have to do every job, especially talking to nurses and doctors. They get thrown in the deep end all the time. And we're talking about saving people's lives. They just have to do it because you're the only person on. And so you actually get to be really good at your job a lot quicker when you're in the country because you get those opportunities. And yet we still think that you've got to have the fancy headquarters in the city to be considered good enough. So I thought, well, no, I'm not going to fall for that. I'm going to embrace this. I'm still going to have my career, but I'm going to embrace where I live. And so that was one big mental challenge. And then I guess it's just the logistical challenges of living so far out. And when I say so far out, 40 minutes from the closest town where you can buy your groceries, Hamilton, and 50 minutes to Warrnambool. So it's not too bad. I've spoken to some women who live on outback stations in WA and their closest town is like a three-hour drive or a six or seven-hour drive to Perth for anything like specialist. So we don't have it that bad, but you just have to be really organised with your life. You just, yeah, like this morning I'm out of fruit. And as a mother, like this sounds ridiculous, right? As a mother, it gives me anxiety because my kids have fruit time at school. 10 a.m. they have fruit. And if they don't have fruit, I look like a bad mum. <laughs> I just haven't done my shop yet and I'm out of fruit. <laughs> <laughs> so I've sourced some apples. I've got enough for tomorrow. I'll be in town tomorrow and I'll do my shop and I'll be able to send my kids to school with some fruit. <laughs> Maybe there's a diversification opportunity there with the farm. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I don't know how we'd go growing apples here in South Victoria. It hasn't been done. <laughs> Probably for a reason. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's for a reason. I don't think we quite have the climate for it. 
But yeah, look, there's a lot of adjustment and like moving away from friends is always hard. My family was in Sydney and in London, so I'd already moved away from them. But yeah, you have to start new relationships and that's always tricky as well, but it just takes time. We've had another guest on the podcast who is based in Dunkeld, that's Kelly Barnes. And one thing she was passionate about was how amazing the Dunkeld community is. How's your local community? What do you absolutely love about it? That is one of the big draw cards of living in the country. I have an amazing community. So my community, I would say, is Woodhouse. So that's where I live. It's not even a town. We don't have anything except for CFA fire shed and a hall. I'm president of the hall. I'm very honoured to be so. And we're all farmers and we all just get together. It's been tricky over COVID times because we haven't been able to hold events and meet up as much as we would have liked to over the last two years. And we're getting back into gear now. But it's a really nice community. I love that I genuinely have neighbours that I could walk into the houses and get some apples if I needed it (laughs) (laughs) and vice versa. They could do the same. We've all had times where we've had to call each other up and the power goes out sometimes. And for some reason, I'm at the end of the line of the power and my neighbour's on a different power line. So We've had showers up at their place when the power's gone out and vice versa. Like, it's a good community. I know that there have been people in the community who have been struggling for various reasons and the community will come together and help them the best that they can to make sure everyone's okay. And you wouldn't get that in the city. We have that responsibility for each other, no matter who we are, what we're doing in our lives. And we keep that up. And the Woodhouse community has got a really interesting history in that it was a soldier settler community after World War II. So after World War II, the men who fought, some of them applied to get a block. This was happening all over the country, but in in this area, the federal government gazetted land from some of the big properties here and they cut them up into smaller parcels and that's where soldiers came back and had a crack at farming. And that's what the community began from the hall. And now, look, everyone's part of the community, but that's its history, which is really interesting. And that's why it's such a good community, because it's kind of steeped in such history of people who came and had to make something of the land. And I do want to also acknowledge the Indigenous people, because they have been overlooked in history. And I think that's something as we as a community need to work on in our area, but I just wanted to acknowledge that as well as being part of the broader history of where we live. It's interesting. My family also come from a soldier settler community as well, so it's great hearing other people's stories from around Australia. But you mentioned your role with the local hall. You were previously doing some reporting work regionally. You wear many hats now. What does that look like? What are you up to? Yes, so I'm the president of the local hall. I wish I could say that was my full-time gig, but it's all volunteer stuff. So I do that when I can. I work at the Victoria Drought Hub as well, three days a week as a knowledge broker. So I'm an academic at Deakin University. I'm studying my PhD, which is looking at misinformation in agriculture, in news and social media. I've only just started, so don't ask me too many questions. (laughs) (laughs) Next episode. Yeah, that's right. When I've done a bit more reading and done conducted my interviews. And look, I also work on the farm, doing the books mainly is what I do. So I like to describe myself as an indoor farmer because I do more of the indoor stuff, which suits me just fine. My husband's more of the outdoor farming type. 
so that's what I'm mainly up to. And then, of course, I have my podcast called Ducks on the Pond, which we started in the middle of last year. Can you tell us a little bit more about the podcast? Yeah, so Ducks on the Pond is a podcast for rural women by rural women. I created this with Jackie Elliott, who's another rural woman who lives in our area. She lives in Bida, and she created her own it's almost like a social movement, but it's called Rural Women's Day. And so we sort of joined forces because I wanted to do a podcast that really spoke to our lives as rural women, something that I wanted to listen to. I get tired of listening to podcasts that are the self-help type, which I quite like. Like I really enjoy listening to ones about money or ones about health, but they don't really fit my life. They don't fit the logistical challenges that I have, the kind of career and work life or balance or lack of balance that we face in the country. So I wanted to have something that really related to us and I wanted to create a platform that's specifically for rural women as a way to highlight rural women as a way of counteracting the stereotype that women are all sort of at home baking scones, which I think really has been challenged a lot. I don't think a lot of people hold that view, but I have had some people in the city who have actually started listening to the podcast because they might have a connection to the country or their daughters moved to the country or something. And they listen to it and they say to me things like, wow, I didn't know that women in the country were all these things. Like some of them are lawyers and Some of them are running these big farm businesses and some of them are accountants or like there's this idea that you're still somehow a housewife baking cakes and there's nothing wrong with that at all. If that's what you want to do and you're fulfilled by that, absolutely, that's fine. But there's just this diversity out there that's not really recognised. And it's also sort of tapping into the opportunities that we've got that technology has given us. You can make a business from scratch. You can have a nice looking website and a social media page and you can find your audience or your clients quite easily. And you don't need to be connected to the city or connected to these big organizations. You can go out on your own and actually create your own organizational business, which a lot of rural women are taking advantage of. That's why I started the podcast. And look, obviously my background is in radio and TV, so it fits quite nicely. It's a great excuse to meet awesome women and have a chat to them. You get to meet some pretty amazing women and cover some pretty important topics. Can you tell us about some of the guests that you've had on and those topics that you've covered? It's such a privilege to talk to so many interesting women from around the country and in New Zealand as well. And we try to have quite challenging topics. I want it to kind of push the boundaries of what we should be talking about or shouldn't be talking about, or just there's always an element of highlighting that we are diverse as women and that we are challenging any preconceived ideas that you might have about us. And some of the most successful topics have been on business and also on mental health. So on the business side, we featured people like Amanda Cochran, who started the Grampians Goods Co. She's also from my region and has done an amazing job in creating this luxury goods company. They sell candles and blankets and all sorts of nice things for your home. She started it from staying up at night pouring candles and now it's a big business and it gets constantly being featured in those in magazines and it's a beautiful brand. We spoke to her about challenging mindsets. For some reason, she had it in her brain that she wasn't good with money. And that went back to just like when she was a child spending all of her money on lollies rather than saving it. And she 
held that with her and had to challenge it. And now she's operating this great business and realizes that she had this silly opinion based on nothing that was holding her back. We've spoken quite a bit about the opportunities that are out there for people in business. As I mentioned before, social media, we often get a lot of listeners when we do ones about marketing and social media and how to best tell your story or your business story or the stories of others, like your clients, to get more people into your business. And I think, like I said, mental health has been a big one. Our most popular episode was on postnatal depression. We had Jess Germer share her experience with postnatal depression. And it was the first time she actually shared that story. And when her first child was born, that was eight years ago, she had postnatal depression. And look, I actually know Jess and I shared that I too had postnatal depression. And the reason why I got Jess on the podcast was because she was the one who helped me make it okay to seek help back then. So when my son was seven, I sort of fell into a bit of a hole. And I think that's, again, going to your question of changing from the city to the country. I had literally only just moved to the country because I'd still been working in Melbourne. Here's Matt Leave. I'm now living in the country, new baby and all of the challenges that it brings. I just slowly found myself in not a great space mentally. And Jess actually spotted that in me because she'd been through it. She, to me, seemed like the nice, normal person. And this is, again, about challenging kind of ideas that we had. For some reason, I thought depression must mean you sit in the corner and be sad all day or something. And no, no, that's not what Jess was like. And that's not how I was like either. I just had these really negative internal thoughts that were coming into my brain all the time about my self-worth that were really bringing me down. And it was Jess who actually pulled me out of that. And now here we are seven years later actually talking about it publicly. So I had never spoken about it publicly and she had never spoken about it publicly. We've certainly told friends of ours who we think would need it. And I would certainly tell any woman who I think needs that advice. But there was still this kind of fear about speaking about it. And I was really nervous and she was a bit nervous, but we went, no, let's do it. And it was the best thing. We got such a great response. I'm still getting messages from other women, other rural women from all over the country saying, I felt like that, or I just went through a really bad time and I couldn't tell anyone. I felt like I was failing as a mother because I felt like this. And we've just got to push against that because you can sit there feeling awful for years or months, or you can get help and you can get fixed relatively quickly. So let's do that. There's no reason you should be there feeling really bad. It's an interesting thought around the privileged position that we have as podcast hosts because we've had people on the show that have shared things with us that afterwards they said, I've never talked about this before. I've never even told my kids about this. And this has now opened up a conversation that I can now have with them. And thank you so much for giving me that opportunity. And it's great that we can help facilitate that. So we'll definitely pop a link in the show notes to your show so that people can explore some of those episodes because I couldn't agree more. Some of the topics that you touch on are conversations that we need to have and I think especially in rural communities as well. Yeah, and they can be tough conversations and I kind of thought if I'm asking people to open up on my show, I think in one episode I can do the same. And it's like ripping off a Band-Aid now because here I am talking about it to you you're the third public forum that I've spoken to about and it gets easier. Like I'm not worried about 
what are people going to think? And anyway, which is not something you should worry about anyway, right? Don't ever worry about what people are going to think. People are going to have opinions anyway. And if you get caught up in that, then you're not going to progress in life. You touched on the role of women in the country and challenging that stereotype. From what you've seen, how is the role of women in rural communities changing? Women are realising that they can pursue their own career and passion a bit more and their role on farm can be anything that they choose it to be. So I think traditionally and historically a woman's role on the farm has been very supportive. They've been involved on the farm always and some have been involved very physically on the farm too, like grandparents' generations. It just wasn't really acknowledged. But there's a lot more choice there that we don't just have to be the support role for our generally male partners to be on the farm. We can also be in the business making the decisions or be in the business on the farm doing things and making decisions. Or if farming is not our thing, really, we can go and have a career somewhere else and still support our farming husband. I know people who have fantastic careers and they say, look, I'm really not involved much with the farm. I live there and but that's my husband's thing. I do this. I'm a doctor or whatever it is. And then we've got people who do both. And that's kind of where I've landed, where I'm involved in the farm, but I also want to maintain my career, which is in the media. And now it's kind of going more into academia. And I'm happy with both. It's taken me this long, like I've been here for eight years, and it's taken me that long to find that happy medium. And in the future, who knows which way it will go. Like I suspect maybe as time goes on, it will go down more the farm route, but who knows? I want to keep those options open. So I think the way it's changing is that we realize that we can have leadership roles and that we can choose our involvement in the farm. We don't have to give up our career to move to a farm. And if we're from the farm, then we can absolutely be the one that takes over the farm Or if we're not even from a farm, but we want to be, we can absolutely drive that and work towards building that. Although financially, that can be really tricky. And I know that you guys have had Sam Marwood, who's a really interesting guy, talking about the troubles but opportunities of trying to start a farm from scratch. But you can do all these things. All of the options are open to you. I couldn't agree more. But yeah, there's definitely those challenges, but with those challenges are huge opportunities. You referred to yourself earlier as an indoor farmer, which I absolutely love. I've never heard that before. And I think that that just totally explains it so well. When did you start to feel comfortable enough to refer to yourself as a farmer? Because quite often when people don't come from a farm, it's not really a term that they throw around unless they're mending fences, out looking after livestock, things like that. Yeah, I've only started using it the last couple of years and it's because I don't really like the term farmer's wife. I don't like the idea that my occupation or identity defined by what my husband does. I don't know any engineers' wives or plumbers' wives. It's a kind of weird thing to say, isn't it? But it's still around today, you hear it. But it is an acknowledgement that there is work often involved in being the partner of a farmer but there's got to be a better name than Farmer's Wife, surely. So I've settled on Farmer and we did an episode on this. Our first episode is Do You Call Yourself a Farmer? And we speak to different women about this who have different ideas on who they are and what their role is. And I settled on Farmer because I am involved in the farm business and also the jobs that I do that aren't directly involved in the farm business, say like 
picking up the kids, making dinner, jobs that enable my husband to work later, to work more, to do stuff on the farm. And it is a family business, which makes it different from other kind of professions where you might be married, but you each have your own jobs and you go to your individual workplaces. So I still have my own individual job, but the farm is a family business and I'm now gradually becoming increasingly involved in that. And yeah, like doing the book work. So that makes me a farmer just because I rarely, I do occasionally move mobs of sheep and things, but because I rarely do that, I'm still a farmer. I just more of the indoor variety. More broadly, this stereotypical image of farmers, I know that you posted something on your Instagram around the image we have in our head of what a farmer should look like. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I was thinking about it because I was standing in a line to pick up a whole lot of rats that, as in the tents. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a new farming enterprise. (laughs) Oh, I could not handle that. To pick up some rats that the Victorian Farmers Federation had organised a whole lot of rats for farming businesses. And this was in the time where you just couldn't get them. And they had secured a heap of rats and we'd placed our orders and paid for them. And there was this secret location that we got the day before and we turned up and collected them. And so I was waiting in the line for that. And it was kind of, it was local news really. So this was in Southwest Victoria. And there was a local reporter there just taking a photo of farmers lining up and collecting their rats, which were hot property at the time. And I just heard him say, oh, you look like a farmer, ready to take a picture. And out of the lineup, most of us were women because women often do those jobs. Like I was down in town anyway, so I was like, I'll pick up these rats. And in that line, there were women standing there with babies and toddlers and there were only about two or three men. And he picked a man that was like in the blue overalls and had scuffy hair and he was an older man. And like, I get it because I was a reporter and I would have done the same thing. You're always trying to show a story in a picture and a picture is worth more than words. When someone's looking at a newspaper, they see the picture first. You want it to tell the story, which is farmers picking up rat tests, right? So what better way to show it with someone who looks like a farmer getting their rat? But of course, that just perpetuates the idea of that's what a farmer looks like. When everyone else was in that line was a farmer, like you had to be a farmer to be in that line. And it was a line mainly of women and women with young kids and and older women. But yeah, there were like not many men at all. And it just made me laugh because it kind of spoke to something deeper about this idea that farmers are men who are older. And I think there was some research done and it was like the average farmer in Australia is a 56-year-old man or something. And it completely overlooks their partner, who is generally a woman. And it also doesn't really tap into the younger generation, which farming things are a little bit different in that the younger generation often goes off and works somewhere else. They might not come back to the farm till they're older. Like my husband didn't come back till he was 31. So it's really hard to measure what that younger generation is doing. And it also overlooks the agriculture industry as well. Like how are we thinking about farmers? Are we talking about farmers as in you have to be someone tending to animals or the land? If so, then I guess, yes, that's farmers. But if we're looking at the agriculture industry, then it's incredibly diverse and you guys are in the agriculture industry and there's, yeah, a whole lot of other jobs and ages and ethnicities and men and women and genders that kind of just aren't getting picked up. 
by how we think about farmers as being an older, I don't want to say old, right? So we kind of have this idea about farming that bleeds, or farmers and it bleeds into agriculture and it's not helpful. It makes our industry kind of look non-inclusive and aging, which is not what it is. It's forward thinking. There are so many opportunities for all types of people and all types of talents that we need to think about it and talk about it and represent it in the way that it is. We refer to it at work as man on horse. So it can't be man on horse, which is that stereotypical old school image of farming. And it comes back to what you said earlier around how can you be what you can't see? How are we expected to attract talent into the industry if we're not promoting all the diverse opportunities that exist within it? And it goes back to that attracting the younger generation and kids that aren't from the country, which I've just landed here completely by chance. And I'm so happy to be here and for the opportunities that farming has brought me. And I just think, wow, I wish I had known when I was growing up, when I was young, that there were all of these opportunities because we just had no idea. Like as a kid in a suburban city school, there was no talk. There was one ag school in our region, but it was like just the one school and they had a couple of cows at their school and that was it. We never did any trips. I did that little petting school in year one where I milked a cow by hand. It's moved on from there, I can tell you now. We've got a couple of dairies. We're not milking by hand. (laughs) (laughs) But there's nothing that, yeah, shows this industry and how agriculture is connected to everyone. We've all got to eat. So food is part of our lives and we don't teach our kids about food in a way that shows there's a connection to land, there's a connection to the ways we live and there are opportunities for you in terms of your career. Even if you don't want to be hands-on, there are so many other jobs out there. Growing up in Western Sydney, there are a lot of kids there that are disadvantaged and aren't academic. You know, I was lucky in that I was just bookish and I really liked school and I did well at school. It enabled me to get into a good uni and do the job, get a decent job. But I know there are a lot of kids who aren't bookish. They're more hands-on. And there are opportunities in those kind of mechanical kind of things. I think places like Western Sydney and say, I'd say the same of probably West Melbourne and parts of Northern Melbourne, they do that well. There's like trades that are really great. But thinking about agriculture as well as an option, particularly for people who are just more hands-on, can really open up huge opportunities for disadvantaged students who can then find a passion in something and get them on the right path. That's what I think we need to be thinking. And I know that there are programs that do that, but I think there is great opportunity there. Yeah, I think we all have to play a role in helping to promote that and having conversations about it. And on the topic of important conversations, what is coming up on Ducks on the Pond? Can you give us a bit of a sneak peek as to who the next couple of episodes might include? Our one, which will probably be out by the time that this one comes out, we're talking about queer pride in the country. And I've spoken to some really interesting women. One who grew up on a farm in Proserpine, a cane farm in in Queensland and moved away fairly young, like as soon as she could, and is now very much a, a city person. But she needed to move from the country to really discover her sexuality it took her a while to actually realise that she's gay and she talks about that and that process. And particularly she was growing up in the 70s and the 80s that there wasn't really much for her to go on. She kind of was growing up in this heteronormative world, didn't really 
think much about it until she finally realised and she tells the moment she realises and you, your heart sort of drops because she realises when she's already with a partner, a male partner, and she's four months pregnant and realises that actually she's gay. And we also speak to a transgender woman who lives in Broken Hill. When she first arrived, she's very much into sport and she started playing footy and some of the people there weren't very accepting and were saying some pretty horrendous things to her. And she thought, what am I going to do? And instead of running away, she becomes a taxi driver and converts one by one, meets everyone and they get to know her. And she's this sort of woman who just goes, you ask me anything, there's no question that's wrong. And she just met people and showed them what being transgender means. And yeah, she's helped to change Broken Hill, which Broken Hill now is really going well. Like they've got the Broken Hill Festival and they're doing really awesome stuff in that front. So that's what we're talking about. I've also got one coming up about the power of art and agriculture, kind of the two art and agriculture. Sometimes people don't really see them as fitting together, but how people have used the artistic fields of music and art to create really interesting businesses and to engage the younger generation and school kids in agriculture, talking about that. And look, we've got some more. And we did one on business coaching recently. And I'm going to do another one on life coaching from some rural women who are life coaches, because I'm kind of coming at it from the point of view that the word life coach can sometimes get a bit of a bad rap. Like people go, oh, life coach, what is that? So we're going to find out what a life coach is <laughs> and whether you should be thinking of it. A couple of really great episodes coming up. We'll definitely have to tune in and listen. But before we wrap up, we do have one final question, and that's one that we ask everyone that comes on Beyond the Farm Gate, and that is when you make the transition from indoor farmer to outdoor farmer, doing some bits and pieces around the farm, what work boots do you wear? <laughs> they are Rossi boots is what I'm wearing, and they are well-worn because my husband gave them to someone, a guy who was working just with us for a few weeks, and it was like in the wettest time ever and they got worn out. Like I have massive feet, so a guy could wear my shoes. Like my feet are huge. They're size 11, but they're now really stretched because my feet aren't that wide. Now when I put them on, I always go, oh, they don't fit properly and I have to wear thick socks and I'm like, I've got to go and get boots. And so it's next on my list is to buy some new boots. I have Rossi boots that sit outside the front door, but I don't know, what should I be getting? Well, the consensus so far has been Rossi boots on the show. That's the most popular answer we get. But when we get you on again to chat about your studies, hopefully you'll have a new pair by then and you'll be prepped and ready for this question. Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you so much for coming on. We've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert and I'll chat to you next time.